All right, would you please join me as I pray? Our Father, we thank you that because of the love and affection shown to us in your Son, Jesus, the conquering lion, that we have authority over death, that we walk in power and in joy because you are with us. You've drawn us together as a family yet again this week to speak to us like a faithful father gathering your children to instruct and train us. And for that, we are grateful. Would you dig us ears to hear in this moment that we would be ready to receive and respond to your word. And I'm asking that you would continue to teach us as a people to know what it is to hold the, the, the pose, the posture of waiting of waiting on you even when it feels like the wicked are prospering around us. I pray, God, that our hearts would find rootedness in your love and in your character in such a way that we are not fretting. We are not worried about what tomorrow holds, but we of all people can wait with anticipation because we know the future is bright in our conquering King. Help us today by this word to believe that more deeply. We need your help. Come and speak. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There's an, there's an NPR podcast called How'd You Do That? Anybody ever heard this one? Show of hands, anybody? Well, you can thank me later. I'm giving you a little gift. Uh, it's, a, it's a fun podcast where it's... Uh, it's interviews with entrepreneurs and thoughtful leaders that have started with an idea and they've created companies or movements or whole new avenues and vistas to explore the world. And in a sense, it's the chance to sit with someone when you're looking at the full-blown reality and go, well, how did this come to be? How did this happen? And you kind of get to work the anatomy, the inner workings of how something emerged out of seemingly nothing. I think Psalm 37 is kind of like an installment of that podcast. We have been studying the psalm specifically looking at waiting. What does it mean to wait on God? To wait on God when in trouble or when things are out of control or this week when the wicked seem to be prospering in Psalm 37. And as we explore that idea, as we sit with David, in a sense, he is, as he explores this idea in the presence of God, going to be answering the question how he did that. How did he, throughout his life, this is a Psalm, verse 25 tells us that he writes at the end of his life. He was a young man, now he's an old man, and he's looking back, and in a sense, he's going to be telling us, here's how I did it. Here's how I was a person marked by waiting on God in the midst of all sorts of circumstances. And as noted, the particular circumstances that he's exploring in Psalm 37 is those moments when we feel like the cheaters, the, the ones that kind of take the shortcuts, the ones that don't care what God has said to be true or right, when it feels like they're winning and they're getting ahead. When we are confronted by wickedness in the world and the ways that it goes unchecked, and we're going, what about this? In that space, David is going to be showing us the anatomy of what it means to wait on God. 
And we will continue to understand as we study these psalms the great power that is bound up in a seemingly simple yet profoundly difficult activity of waiting, even when everything else feels like it's on fire. So when the wicked prosper, wait patiently because the Lord is going to make things right. Let's see if we can explore that idea together in Psalm 37. First off, what do we mean by the wicked prosper? What is it that David is wrestling with when he considers that the wicked will prosper? If we were to study verse by verse this entire chapter, it's 40 verses, and so we're not going to be able to just work it straight through, but I'm going to introduce you to the themes and the whole of it. And throughout these 40 verses, he actually mentions the wicked 13 times. He mentions the wicked 13 times. He mentions the evildoer three times. He mentions the wrongdoer. He mentions the ruthless, which literally means a violent tyrant or an oppressor. David is wrestling with the fact that wicked people are plotting against God's children. And it seems like they're winning. Let me just show it to you in a few places in this psalm. Uh, They'll be highlighted on the screen or if you want to find them in the text with me. It's verse 1, 12, 14, and 35. This is just as a sampling. David writes this, Fret not yourself because of evildoers and be not envious of wrongdoers. In verse 12, he says this, The wicked plots against the righteous. He gnashes his teeth at him. This is the posture of anger. That he's, there's a wicked person that is actively angry and plotting against the righteous in verse 12. In verse 14, it says, The wicked draws the sword, bends their bows to bring down the poor and the needy, to slay those whose way is upright. And then lastly, verse 35, he says this, I have seen a wicked and a ruthless man spreading himself out like a green laurel tree. Do you feel what David is wrestling with? He's watching the world and he's seeing people that are wicked, ruthless, evil, and they're spreading out in the noonday sun like everything is going swimmingly. And he's wrestling as a person that wants to honor God and wants to order his steps in alignment with God. And he's wrestling as one who believes in God's goodness and his character and his oversight of the world going, this doesn't make sense that the wicked prosper in these ways. They are spreading out like green laurel trees. They're they're living their best life in this moment. And is there going to be any recompense? Is there going to be anything done about this? We could imagine what it is that has caused David to go to this place mentally, knowing his story like we do. We know that he has lots of examples that he could draw from. The most obvious is the 10 plus years that he was on the run from King Saul. Night after night, can you imagine David David as a man that's 25 or 28 or 30 years old? A man who is anointed by the prophet Samuel. He knows that he is marked out by God to be king in Israel. And night after night, he goes to sleep in a cave with a rock as his pillow. He's on the run, afraid for his life and afraid for his family. Meanwhile, there's a man named Saul who doesn't honor God, who is slowly turned away from God, who is prideful and pompous, who is saying things that aren't true about David. He is trampling his reputation nationally. And he, night after night, goes to sleep in royal beds 
in plush linen clothes with a nice plush pillow. He is sleeping easy like a green laurel tree spread out in the noonday sun. David spent years wondering, how does this make sense? How does this work? This has been his journey year after year. And now as an old man, he's looking back and he has a little bit of perspective on it. So the context of this psalm is when the wicked prospers. This touches our lives in a number of ways. One, David is talking about statesmanship, what's happening at national levels with national leaders. And it may be, and it should be, that as Christians you have a a heart for justice and, and the brokenness and injustice in the world. One of the ways that we might wrestle with this is the realization that millions of people today live under oppressive regimes, being mistreated by those that have authority and power. The people that carry the image of God being mistreated. I read last year a really haunting and excellent book called In Order to Live by Yeomi Park about growing up as a little girl in North Korea, escaping by night into China and all that she experienced on this journey. And she now is on the international platform speaking about the gross injustices that are still worked against her people, against family and friends that are still hidden away under an oppressive regime, while the leaders profit off of it. That's happening today all around the world. This psalm gives us language to wrestle with that. That's partially how God's teaching us to pray. He's going, listen, right now, all around the world, oppressive tyrants are experiencing blessings. How do we deal with that as Christians? More pointedly and personally, as we're trying to situate ourselves in this text, you could consider those in your life that feel like they're not honoring God, but they're prospering, and it's negatively impacting you. I've sat with people in my office that have said things like, I have the worst boss prideful and egotistical, takes credit for things that he or she didn't do, and I show up every day feeling the weight and the frustration, at times the misery of having to work in this place under this sort of leadership, if that's you, here's a text that's going to help you understand how do you, how do you operate in a setting like that? Or where coworkers that are supposed to be collaborators are actually competitors that say things about you that aren't entirely true or are undercutting your work, and you're going, I thought we were all on the same team. Into that space, how do we think and pray as Christians? Perhaps it's the competition that just opened up down the road. Another friend of mine was, was sharing with me the concerns of a, com- a competitor, competitor that were really well-funded with very low integrity. He goes, we're competing for the same deals, and they're saying things that are not true. This is going to significantly impact my life and my family. What do I do? Do you feel it? I don't know where you're living, but what I know is this. We live in a broken world where the evil and wickedness, they, they prosper. And into that space, the question is, what is our response to be? What is our response to be on a, on a nation-state level with things that we can't control but continue to be the case? What about at work or in our personal relationships? Into that space, David is going to say, listen, I was a young man and now I'm an old man and I've learned a few things. And here's the call and the place where you're wondering, why do they spread out like a green laurel tree? Why is everything going okay for them even as it negatively impacts me? He says this, wait. Wait 
patiently, he's going to say, which offends every fiber of my body because I want to make it right. I want to rage against this. I want to fight it. I want to go even in places where I don't have authority to do it. I want to, and he's going to say, yes, 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 I know, but wait. And this is where it feels like the podcast starts for me. Into that context, it's almost like we hit play and we get to sit with David and go, but what do you mean really? How'd you do it? How did you wait patiently for the Lord? How did you wait in that sort of context where it, was, it felt like everything was not going the way that you thought it would, the way that you thought God had said it would? You felt like God's word was not being accomplished because of the brokenness of the world interrupting it. What about there? And he's going to say, wait patiently. And he's going to give us kind of three crucial steps as to how he did it. And I just want to explore those briefly together. The first step to waiting patiently in David's life is this. He engaged fret-free stillness. Fret-free stillness. Let me show it to you in the text and then see if I can explain it to you. Look back at verse 1 and verse 7 and 8 with me. Do you hear it right off the bat? Fret not yourself. In Hebrew, it literally means to heat up means to get a little hot under the collar, to get anxious and worried that you're looking at evil and you're going, this isn't right and I've got to fix it. And you lay awake and you think about it and you think about it and you think about it. And he's going, the heat is being turned up and all it is is his internal churn that doesn't accomplish anything. He goes, listen, listen, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. In verse seven and eight, he says it like this, be still before the Lord. The, the definition of that term in Hebrew for be still is, is directly connected to silence. He's literally saying like become a mute, be t- become dumb is what it means in Hebrew. Like act like this is not your business. You don't have anything to say about it. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself. There's that same phrase again. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. Do you think he's making a point? That's, time, that's, that's the third time. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. So David knows well what is natural to the human in this sort of setting, where it feels like God's purposes are being interrupted, where things feel like they're out of control, where the wicked are prospering, where God's plans aren't moving forward, in that place, we are tempted to be the sorts of folks that lay awake at night and wring our hands over all the things that we can't control. He's going, I get it. There are a lot of nights and a lot of caves full of a lot of fret. I know how it goes. So as he's being interviewed on the podcast, they're going, but how do you wait for the Lord? He says, the first thing is we've got to unwind this fret thing. We've got to understand what fret not and engaging stillness means. Fret-free stillness is the first step to understanding what it means to wait patiently for the Lord. As I was processing with Ashley in our hospital room, even this week, I was saying, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what does it mean to engage fret-free stillness. And she was like, I feel like that probably has like 36 steps. And I'm not up for 34 of them. And uh, I was like, yeah, I think that's an, a really honest piece of feedback. Like when we feel the unrest, 
we go, yeah, yeah, fret, freestyle, that sounds easy, doesn't it? But as we know, it, it, it's not that easy, but I do think he's giving us a few keys here in this first step. He's saying, stop, stop talking about it endlessly. When he says be still, he's saying, shh, 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 shh. The temptation is when things aren't going well, that we allow all of our thoughts and all of our language to be about that thing. That every conversation we, we talk with with someone, that it, it just it flows out like the dam has broken and we are, we are fretful people to the point where we are overflowing with the fret. <laughs> like I'm, uh, I've got plenty to give, right? And he's going, listen, when he says be still, he's literally saying be dumb, be silent, act like you, you don't have anything to say about this. The, the idea is just slow down with the hamster wheel churn on this, open your hands. I, I literally, I, I'll tell you the way I'm trying to practice it right now. I will literally, it's one hour to start the day with the Lord. It's keeping an open conversation with the Lord throughout the day by the Spirit, which is available to us. We get to be in conversation with Him all day long. And I need to practice body posture, opening my hands, taking a deep breath. Even if I have four minutes before a meeting, to walk, to get my blood flowing, and to talk, not to other people about the things I can't control, but to the Lord about the things he can control. He's saying, fret not, be still. Like, until you can engage a fret-free stillness, the ability to wait is not there, because how can you wait when you feel like this? When it, when it feels like when you're trying to deal with the boss that keeps undercutting or the coworker that keeps competing and you're going, how do I show up into this place and wait on God? The first thing is we've got to figure out how to get the internal this thing to unwind. And it's true that it's not the same for everyone. We all have our own spiritual thumbprint, but we need to make our bullseye to be the person with the lowest blood pressure in the room. That's the bullseye. That's the first thing. We are not going to accomplish the righteousness of God if we are red-faced and clenched fist and trying to manage lots of things that are, were never our business to manage. And so it's fret-free stillness. I will say this. David's an old man. I've been trying to give myself grace. <laughs> He's learned these lessons over years and years of sleeping in a lot of caves. And I just want to give you the grace to recognize this is a lifetime's journey, but if we don't know the bullseye we're aiming for, are we going to be going in the right direction? So it may be that this week you feel like, I lost the fret battle. <laughs> That's okay. But can you continue to remind ourselves, we can continue to remind ourselves in the spirit that the reason I'm engaging prayer, the reason I'm coming back to God, the first step to understand what it is to wait is I'm aiming at having the lowest blood pressure of taking deep breaths, of speaking less. Stop picking at the scab, talking endlessly about things that you don't have authority over and begin to take it to the Lord because he says fret-free stillness is the first step. We have to learn how to interrupt the hamster wheel. But I love what comes right on the heels of it. It's as if the interruption of the hamster wheel opens us up to a whole new world. And if we can just be honest, fretting, being anxious and full of worry feels like a 
an interruption to creativity and to life. We get a very narrow field of vision when we allow our problems to set the occasion for everything that we're doing. You follow me? When you indulge the thoughts and just stay in the hamster wheel, your world gets very, very small. But what he says is when you learn to wait patiently for the Lord, you engage fret-free stillness. And then the next thing he says is start doing good. I want to show it to you in the text and then just explore the beauty of it together. This is part of of waiting patiently. It's not being lazy. It's not being bored. It's engaging a fret-free stillness. And then from that place, start doing good while you're waiting for the Lord to bring an answer to this have an answer to. Look at it with me. Verse 3, 5, 27, 34. Let me see if I can show it to you as a theme through the psalm. Verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. So he's saying, do good. Stay right where you are. Befriend faithfulness. Wherever faithfulness is, you be companions with him. Be right next to him. He says in verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. So this is the idea of our way running in conjunction with the Lord. Wherever he's going, I'm going. Verse 27, he says it this way. Turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. In verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land and you will look on when the wicked are cut off. Do you hear it? He is marrying, waiting to doing good over and over. So he's, he's commanding waiting. He commands it three times throughout this psalm. It is the thematic element of the psalm and he's showing us how it works. And he says the first thing is you have to be still. You have to interrupt the hamster wheel. And when you do, you will start to have eyes for things beyond you. You will be able to befriend faithfulness. You will start doing good. You will start being a blessing rather than just being bound up in your fretting. I, I've loved, if I can just say this, so you guys know where Ash and I are living, most of you right now, most of you know, we were, I think, day 82 in the hospital over the last six months. That's a lot of days to be in the hospital. Um, our precious son, Cruz, is still in the ICU today. Still, we're, we're hoping his lungs continue to develop. Um, what I have seen my wife do over these 82 days has been really faith-increasing. I have watched her in moments. She and I both will get bound up in our fretting, and we'll try to remind ourselves of what's true. And what I have found her is in really low moments where we're really concerned about our son. I have watched her be reminded of what's true and lift her head and start realizing there are nurses that are here every night. A lot of them work here. I mean, a lot of them worship here. Welcome, by the way. Um, They stay up all night caring for little ones. They're so selfless and compassionate and full of care. And when we're bound up in our stuff, They're just like a mechanism in the system. But when all of a sudden we start to see, I've watched my wife put together little packages and gift packets, thank you notes. She has blessed them. And I've watched her. I'm like, I am stunned that you have the capacity for that right now. But what I see is a picture of what it means to wait on God when we don't have answers. We can sit here wrestling and wondering about all the things that we can't control or 
we could engage from stillness and start looking around and going, what would it look like to do good while we're waiting? I'll tell you, I have failed nine times out of 10 on that front, but I've watched my wife succeed and that's been a joy. And I wanna say that whatever you're in the midst of, you can do the same and it is stunning to watch the way it reshapes culture and the, and the oxygen that people are breathing. So right now, if things at work are sideways for you and it feels like the culture at work is one of competition and backbiting, the temptation it's to go to the water cooler with the trusted people, you know, the proverbial water cooler, and be like, can you believe what's going on over there or what their department did or the way they made that decision? And you, you're talking about it. You're engaging with it. You're getting hotter under the collar the more you talk about it. It's building fret. If you would just be dumb about it, stop talking, work it out with the Lord, and start surveying the landscape, figuring out what would it look like to do good. The amazing thing, when you quit being a weed whacker and you start being a fertilizer, when you start just looking at all of life going, which weeds need to be pulled and you're frustrated and you're working around and you're just, <clears throat> and you reposition yourself and you go, I'm going to show up and I'm going to fertilize good stuff. I'm going to make it my job to find the healthy stuff and to pour miracle grow on it. If you show up at work and you think, who's doing a great job, and they, like me, don't feel underappreciated and not seen, and they feel like nobody's... Make it your job, whether it's your responsibility or not, to be a blessing to all of those people around you. Write little notes, bring little gifts. Go, hey, I just want you to know, I'm not sure if anybody praised this work you did that nobody saw, but I saw it, and it was awesome. It made the whole team better. Thank you for doing that. When you show up and you begin to take that approach, what David is saying is that's divine waiting. It's not inactive in the waiting. It's producing fruit all around the edges, around the thing that you can't do anything about. Here's this wicked that's this expanding as a, a laurel tree in the sun, and you're like, man, I wish I could do something about that. Well, the truth is you can't. But what you can do is fertilize all the beautiful things all the right and good things. He says, get busy doing that. And then, amazingly, when we quit weed whacking and we start fertilizing, we, we've engaged in fret-free stillness long enough to see something other than ourselves and our own trouble, and then we start blessing in those places. It brings us to this last note. It's a word that gets repeated throughout the psalm, and the word is delight. <laughs> Delight is the third step in waiting. And I love that David, who is an old man who's lived his whole life dealing with challenge and headwinds, and he's going, what I've learned is this. It's not just about surviving. It's not just about keeping my chin above the waterline. It's not just about not being a fretful mess. He's saying, what I have found is this. It is possible even when you feel like the wicked are prospering, when it feels like things are on fire, when it feels like the promises of God are being miscarried, he's going, in that moment, it is possible to find delight. He says it in verse 4, right in the midst of talking about waiting. You heard it. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. This is going on the offensive. 
but going on the offensive in a totally different way than we would have expected in our flesh. You see, the idea is that oftentimes when the wicked are prospering, when things aren't going well, we think, how do I, how do I fight fire with fire? How do I push back? How do I fix this? How do I manage this? It's going, lay down your fret, engage your stillness, start blessing what needs to be blessed. And then rather than going and trying to fight fire with fire, sink your heart deep down into me. Find delight right here in this valley, right here in this cave, right there with that stone as your pillow. Find delight in me. It's available. <laughs> I hope this... Uh, I hope this rings as good of news as it is in your ears, that we in Jesus have the capacity to delight no matter life circumstances. That's what he's saying, because it's found in the Lord. It was never found in your circumstances. The folly was thinking when times were good and everything was easy, that that was our delight. The folly was allowing the roots of our delight to sink into temporary things that can be wiped away tomorrow. That's the folly. What he's saying is, listen, your delight in Jesus is permanent and can't be touched by your circumstances. When you engage some fret-free stillness and you start looking around and figuring out how to bless, and then in the midst of that you say, and now I'm going to go on the offensive to put my roots deep down into the Lord. He's saying, delight is possible. He even says later that it's that uh, the one who does this work is going to delight in the abundance of peace, that delight starts to flow into other things all around this person. I, I long for a group of men and women released into this city who are experiencing delight in the Lord even when all of their enemies are prospering. This is a profound and a powerful witness, and it's a profound and a powerful experience for our hearts. I think in part it means making worship a weapon. I have found this is one of the ways to experience this for me. Did you know that worship is a weapon that makes darkness scatter? Like, when we decide, I am going to be a worshiper no matter life circumstances, we are commanded over and over and over from the beginning of the Bible to the end to be people who sing. When you have a voice is as bad as mine, that just feels offensive. It's like, why do you keep commanding me to do this thing? But what I have found is this. It is a weapon that will make darkness scatter. It will enthrone God. It will invite him into a presence. And so for me, as I have been trying to obey these commands and say, okay, I want to delight myself in the Lord, what might that look like? It means that I need to do some things that previously I was uncomfortable with. The folks that work up and down the hall, some of you have heard this, and, and those that work with me know it, that the door to my office will sometimes be closed, and, and people will, will knock, and uh, they'll give me a moment, because what they know is that I'm, I'm dancing. Uh, I'm not a dancer. This is out of obedience to the text that we are commanded to dance in the Psalms. And I was like, I wonder what that's all about. I'm going to try it. And what I've found is this. I think it shames the enemy. I think it shames him. That when there are things in life that threaten to rob your joy, that if the circumstances, if this world and everything being comfortable and easy is what life is about, 
which is what the enemy sells us. It's the lies he wants us to believe. That when in the midst of our darkness and our disappointment, we engage some stillness and we remind ourselves of what's true and we start blessing others and then we go, and by the way, I'm going to go dance to the Lord for a minute. What I begin to feel is an unexpected delight that like sabotages me. It jumps out of the bushes and it's like, look, you really are safe. He really is king. The lion really has conquered death. We really are going to taste resurrection power. This world doesn't tell your story. He does. You see, waiting, waiting is not just like hold on and survive. Be still. Lay down your fret. Start to fertilize the good things around you and direct your heart to delight in the Lord. And what you will find is that you will come back and you will survey the landscape and, and the wicked are still prospering. The circumstances are still not great. Life still hard. And by the way, you're comfortable waiting on God. You know that you don't have to fix it today. You are alive and full of joy even while you're waiting. This is the anatomy of waiting. And he finishes by saying, and the reason I know that this is true is because the Lord is going to make things right. He's going to make things right. I don't have time to survey all the verses. He spends a lot of time meditating on this. I'll just say this. He says, one, the Lord's going to deal with the wicked. He's going to deal with the wicked. I'll just, I'll, I'll read you a few verses. Verse 10, he says, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he's not going to be there. Verse 13 through 15, the Lord laughs at the wicked. He sees that his day is coming. The wicked draws the bow, draws the sword and bends the bow and to bring down the poor and the needy to slay those whose way is upright. He says their sword is going to enter their own heart and their bows are going to be broken. There are other verses, but what he is doing is he's painting the picture that time and time again, the wicked are going to be dealt with. And do you know that the Lord is, he's only mentioned three times in the Bible as laughing. This is one of them. This is one of them. The other, Psalm 2, and then the, uh, Psalm 59. Psalm 2, 37, 59. And do you know each time he's laughing at the same thing? The wicked that are raging in the world. The nations that are pounding their chests against his intentions. The three times that God's laughing at the Bible is in that moment. It kind of reminds me, not that they ever do it anymore. These are precious and perfect children on the front row. Uh, but over the years, there have been these temper tantrums, you know, when they were younger. I feel a little bit like that, you know, when, when all of a sudden a kid just loses touch with reality as they have the ability to do and they're kicking and thrashing and screaming. There have been moments where we've just decided we're going to engage the humor in it rather than, I used to like melt and be like, what do people think? And, you know, you're in the grocery store and I was like, I'm done caring what people think. Uh, kids do this sometimes. And, and I'll like carry, I remember carrying, I don't remember which one of it was, by one leg through H-E-B just like, ah, and I was like, <laughs> and we got out to the parking lot, and I just stood there, I was like, you done? <laughs> but, I mean, maybe it's bad parenting, but <laughs> this is what I think, like, when I think of these psalms, there's a part of it where God's like, you think you're so big and bad, wicked and evil, that tyrant that's owning everything right now, and you get the sense that God's like chuckling, going, really? Really? 
You think this is going to work? Let's stretch it out over a little bit of time and see how this pans out. Survey the landscape of history and ask the question, how does it work out? The wicked are going to be dealt with. The day is coming. He's going, you don't have to lay awake worrying about the things that you can't control. He, certainly there are other Psalms where we're praying about it, where we're wrestling with it. We care about justice. I'm not saying don't care. What I am saying is let's go sit with the Father for a minute and hear him chuckle. There's part of it of like just slowing down and being with God and going, oh yeah, you're not worried. You have all the authority. You have a sense of humor. <laughs> you know that you are going to deal with all of the ugliness and brokenness finally. And there I can find some rest. Listen, he's going to make things right. He's going to deal with the wicked. And by the way, he is going to uphold and rescue and save and bless his own. He's going to do it. There's a lot of verses I could read to you. I'll just read the conclusion of the psalm. Verse 39 and 40. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in times of trouble. The Lord helps them. He delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and he saves them because they take refuge in him. You see, we know as we read the scriptures in their greater context that Jesus is the one who fulfills each of our prayers in the book of the Psalms. We read the Psalms and we study them and we turn and set our gaze on Jesus and say, what does this mean in light of you? And what it means is this. He took the curses of the wicked and the fretting upon himself. He took it upon himself so that the blessings that were intended for the righteous could be poured out on those who are in him. Did you hear the phrase in verse 40? It's how he finishes. If you're hidden away in him, he will pour out his rich blessings on you. It says earlier in the text that even though the righteous will fall, the Lord holds his hand and he will uphold him. And the idea is this, that Jesus fell and there was no one to hold him. He fell all the way to the depths of hell itself. Nobody broke his fall. He took it all into himself. He said, take all of the curses that are due the evil and the wicked and put them on my shoulders so that those who hide away in me, their punishment will be absorbed and what I will do is I will hold them and they will know with confidence that I have gone all the way down to the depths and I will uphold them. Friends, even in the moment where the wicked prospers, even in the moment where it feels like the promises of God are unfulfilled, wait. Wait for him. He hasn't forgotten you. He's God. Wait for him. And as you engage stillness and you do good, you will find your heart's delight. And in that place, what you will know is this. He's going to make all of it right. Let me pray for us. God, there's no one like you. No one. Who else are we going to rest on and trust in? Who else are we going to wait for and delight in? 
There's no one else that can deliver, that has delivered generation after generation and will until the climax and the culmination of history. It's you. And so I pray that we would be found willing to wait. That we would be a people that don't just constantly and unendingly engage the fret, but that we would be a still people, a confident people, a joyful people because we know that the Lord is going to make things right. Thank you that these promises find their yes and their amen in Jesus Christ. He's our hero and our hope. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.